Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, we are find ourselves here in um, chapter 3 of Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy. We are going to be, as uh, Donnie just read there, verses 8 through 13. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the role of elders and how in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, it talks about that, that God has placed elders over the church or it says overseers. That word can be translated pastor, elder, bishop, uh, this idea of overseers. And, and we kind of have worked through that. Here in 8 through 13, he's going to shift gears a little bit and, and look at another role in the church, uh, another function in the church that Paul is telling Timothy uh, to be thinking about as Timothy continues to help uh, support the church and, and structure the church, the early churches there. As I was thinking about this, um, the structure of things and the structure of the church, I began to think back on my past a little bit, and, and I would encourage you to do the same here, and maybe you can relate to some of this. Much of what we think about the church, when I say the church, the, the gathering on Sunday morning, how it's structured, what we do, um, I mean, for many of you, if you've ever been to a, a new church, you've never been there before, you're walking, you're thinking, okay, what are we going to do in here? What are they going to do? Am I going to have to stand up? Am I going to have to sit down? Am I going to have to sing? Is there hymnals? Is there not hymnals? You know, are, are we going to take communion? How do they take communion? Do they put it in my mouth? Do they not put it in my mouth? I mean, there's all sorts of things that you've got to begin to think about, right? It can be kind of a traumatic experience for some people, actually. Some people don't go to church because they're afraid of those kind of things. And so I began to kind of think about like my, my growing up, and, and I grew up in the Lutheran church, uh, downtown Dayton, big stone, stained glass building, I think one of the, probably the, one of the two or three most beautiful churches in the city of Dayton. Um, and and I grew, we were Easter, Christmas people some years, and then there was a season of our life uh, when I was a, a young boy, early teenager, that we were there every week. I mean, as long as my parents were feeling okay and not sick, we were there. As I began to think about that, I think a lot of what I thought about church was based on what I grew up with, what I saw, what I, and, and there's nothing wrong with that to some degree, but it, it can cloud us. Um, I've said, you know, media has a huge influence on our lives. The churches that we attend, rightly so, should have a huge influence on our life. But sometimes those things are not necessarily always good for us. Not that they're horrible. Sometimes maybe they are, but they're not healthy. Um, sometimes they just kind of distort things. For, for people in my generation, when we think, and I've said this before, when we think of, of the, you know, the Ten Commandments, we think of Charleston Heston. I mean, that's, that's who comes to my mind even now. I mean, I, he's, he's just plastered. He's got the red robe. He and I can see him, you know, with his staff. Because I watch that year after year after year after year after year. And yet there's things in the, that movie that are not doctrinally correct about what took place. There's a lot of creative license there. And so... So as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about like my time in the Lutheran church. Um, here's, what, here's what I remember about the Lutheran church. And, and God used it to, to really bless me and, and put me on a good track. Um, I remember that one is when you, when you opened the big doors and everything was arched way and you opened these big doors and you walked into the, the sanctuary. I mean, you felt, I mean, at 12, I thought, God lives in here, man. I mean, like, it creaks, it it's quiet, every, you know, it's huge, and you can sit down in a pew and it creaks and you can hear it everywhere. Um, it was just beautiful, the stained glass, painted ceilings, the whole thing, the word work, the two big, um, the 
two big podiums on each side, the big altar in the center with candle operas, and many times the communion was sitting on there. Once a month it was sitting there. And, and the pastor always wore a white robe with a, a big colored sash that went around it. And I know there was meanings for different sashes and all things. It depends what season it was in the church calendar. And they would process in. And so he would be singing and they'd all have their hymnals and all the, all the choir would be behind them in their robes and they'd be singing. And it was pretty incredible, actually. As a little boy, you know, it was, it was pretty amazing. And they would go up and they would take their seats. And, and, and I, at the time, uh, I was part of that procession. Sometimes because I was a what was called an acolyte, and so I went and I had the, the you know I had the little thing that was lit, and I would go up and light the candles on the candle opera, and then at the end of the service I would snuff them out, and we would do that, and and so this all a lot of a lot of incredible you know um, flair there, and not not bad. It was just it was how we did it, right? How we did it. You know, we would sing hymns. Everybody had hymnals, and we would sing hymns, and it was a massive pipe organ, probably the, I think maybe one of the most largest pipe organ in Dayton. Uh, it, many people have been there and take tours, and it's just, it was just, it's so beautiful, and, and you could just hear it everywhere in the church when it played. We would recite the Lord's Prayer. We would, at, almost every week, recite the Lord's Prayer. We would recite the Apostles' Creed. Sometimes we recite the Nicene Creed. There was the first lesson reading. There was a second lesson reading. There was a gospel reading, uh, multiple readings, um, there was responsive readings where, you know, the pastor would say something, then we would, you know, hear our prayers, Lord, and we'd go back and forth. And then there was communion once a month, uh, and we would go up, and there was a big kneeling rail up front, and, and we would go up, and, and as a young boy, uh, I hadn't been um, confirmed yet, I hadn't made a profession of faith, and so uh, they would just lay his hand on me, and he would pray for me, but other people would take communion at that point. And then the message would generally be about... 20 minutes long. Wouldn't you love to be in that church, right? I know that's what you're thinking right now. Only if we could go back to that, Raleigh, right? Didn't you learn anything? Um, and so, and that's my memory. That's really what shaped my, my view of church. Now, I will say along the way, I also attended some Roman Catholic churches uh, because we played soccer, and every time we'd get in the tournament, the whole team would go to somebody's church on the team, and we'd be in church every Sunday as a team. We'd wear our jerseys, and we'd We'd go, and I, I, don't know what, I don't know what that was all about. I don't know if the coach thought if we prayed that we would win. You know, I mean, I, I'm sure the other team's in church someplace. I mean, who's, you know, God's going to take favorites there. And so we would go, and, and so what do I remember about the Roman Catholic Church? Not much. I wasn't there a lot. I remember the incense, you know, filling the air, which I felt quite at home because in my room, that's the way it was too in the 80s, you know what I mean? It was incense in my room. Uh, Spencer Gifts, anybody remember Spencer Gifts at the Salem Mall? I know some of you remember that. You're just unwilling to admit it. Um, and so it was just this, the, the memories, the things that, that began to shape my mind about the church, uh, about how it should function, what it, how, it, how it looks. I remember um, going to some Pentecostal churches, and, and that was a different view. Like, wow, that's, that's exciting, I guess, you know? I mean, they were very, you know, more animated and um, all sorts of things that were taking place there. A lot of, a lot of much more passionate preaching um, not bad or good necessarily. I'm just saying that that's kind of the way it was. And, and so it was just all these, these pictures of different things. And then we came to the Ridge. And when we first came to the Ridge, it was in the high school, uh, the old Brookville High School. And there was, like I've said before, two plastic plants on a stage with some ladies singing to a track. And after being in the big church, that didn't seem like church to me. It just didn't. Now, 
I come to learn it absolutely was church. The gathering of the, the you know the saints together is church. Doesn't doesn't require the building, the the body, the church is us. Those that are uh, born again believers, and so. As I begin to think about what we're going to teach on today, I wanted to just kind of set the standard for kind of, because we're going to talk about something that, that is somewhat a little bit subjective in the church. Now, there are clearly things in church, in the structure of the church based in Scripture, that are clear, that are absolutely non-negotiable and clear things. Um, that Jesus is the only way, that we're created male and female. I believe that, that uh, the role of pastor elder is for men, and, and there's just very clear things that are laid down. But then there's some other things that, that, while I tell people all the time the Scripture is clear, I don't understand it. I'm not, never going to say the Scripture is not clear, because God is clear. And, but, but I may not understand it. And, and so I, I kind of came across a couple passages I want to share with you, just to kind of set the tone for our time together. Is John chapter 4, verse 24. Here it says, those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay? So this idea is that if, if we're going to worship God, we have to worship in spirit and truth. We have to be born-again believers. We have to worship in the spirit, right? The, the, the spirit of the Lord. And we have, need to worship in truth. Now, there's certain truths, biblical truths, that when we worship, we have to, we have to hear to. We have to, we're here worshiping because we believe a truth, right? That, that Jesus was the Son of God. He lived sinlessly. He died. He rose again. His Father rose him so that we could, for those be found in Christ, we could be forgiven and spend eternity with him. And, and that's just this beautiful love story. And so we worship in truth. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, which we'll actually come to here in a few weeks, Paul tells Timothy this. He says, until I come, meaning Paul says, until I get there, and we don't know that Paul ever got to see him, but Devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So here, Paul has is, is laid out some pretty foundational things that should be present in any church that you go to. So one, it, you should be worshiping spirit and in truth. There should be the public reading of Scripture. Now, that could be from the pastor. It could be from congregants. It could be, like this morning, Donnie read, right? The public reading of Scripture. That's why we're here. We're to sit under the teaching of the word. We're not here for self-help. We're not here to, for me to do stand-up comedy, which is not, would not be pretty. We're not here for any of that. We're here to sit under the teaching of God's word. And so not only that, but it says that we're here for exaltation. Exaltation. This idea that we exalt who God is. We make much of him. We, we proclaim his name. And when I say that, it's not the pastor that should be doing that only. It's all of you that are the saints, the believers, should be having exaltation to each other and exalting God and exhorting who God is with each other, reminding each other of the hope that we have in the gospel and who Christ is and how we're forgiven, how we're blessed. That should all be part of our, our process together. And the teaching. So the third thing you should see in any church that you go to is the teaching of the word primary. Is it the thing that is primary in all of this, the exhortation, the teaching, right? Is it primary? All of it, notice it all has to do with the word, the reading of the word, the exalting of what the word says, and the teaching of it so that we can understand, so that we can be exalted even more, right? We can proclaim it even more. Those are the foundational pieces of the church. And so I've been in churches where not much of that goes on. I've been in churches, a lot of churches where that definitely goes on. That is the, the thing. We are trying to rightly uh, align ourselves with that here at this church, at the Ridge. 
Now, I will tell you this. Um, when, when we get to these places, what, what we have to be careful of is that tradition, our likes don't drive how we function as the body of Christ inside the church. And that, and that goes outside of even the, the local gathering, but specifically I'm talking about our corporate gathering. The Reformation, some 500 and some years ago, was kind of a, a, a time to, to get the church back on track because they had moved away from that. The, the, the decisions of, of the powers that be, the priests, the Catholic church, were, were doing all sorts of things that were not, were not part of what Scripture said we should do. And so the Reformation, men got together and said, we need to get back to what the Bible teaches and do what it tells us to do. And so the Reformation happens, and you have the, the birth of the Protestant Reformation, and, and you know, one thing leads to another, and we're here today. But I would argue that even today in our culture, that there needs to be somewhat of a Protestant Reformation again to get back to Scripture. We've had that even here at the church over the last 25 years. We have found ourselves in places where like, well, okay, how did we get over here? Like, we shouldn't be here. We should need to be back over here again. It became about something else sometimes, and not in major ways, but we always want to make sure that we're getting back to. So we're trying to have more public reading of Scripture. We're trying to have more prayer time. We're trying to, to do those things. Our teaching has become a little different. We're more expository. Not that it always has to be expository. We're trying to be more in the Word. We're trying to teach what the Scripture says, not just have a, a feel-good, walk-away, I-feel-better. That, that, at times, that can be a part of I hope you feel better when we're teaching the Word. So that, that's kind of where we're at. And so the, the most important thing is the upholding the teaching of the word. And so today, as we're going to continue to look here at this letter from Paul to Timothy, he's going to provide Timothy some, some important information, I think, as far as how the church is structured for us, for us. So once I said, last week we looked at the role of elders in verses 1 through 7. And we saw there that the, the role of elder and pastor is reserved for men. And when we saw that because he, he says he, his, like 10 times, and so it clearly is pointing to a man. God gives specific qualifications for this position, for the role of elder, specific. And I will tell you that um, it needs to be specific and it needs to be a high standard. But I will tell you that God is not setting a standard of perfection. He's just saying these are some basic things you need to do and, and we should all strive, all of God's people should strive for those things. And then we saw that it's best if there's a plurality of elders. In other words, more than one. Um, for many reasons, which I talked about last week, is just that's a benefit. But today we're going to look at another very important role that Paul uses to describe an area of service inside the church. It's the role of deacon. It's the role of deacon. Now many of you, maybe, um, well you've probably never heard that word here in this church, um, not because we don't agree with it, we just have not taught on it. We've not, we don't, in our, in our modern culture, we've not, we've, many years ago, we just chose not to use that term. Um, I, don't even, I was not part of that, I don't know. Um, even a lot of churches, you don't hear that a lot. Not saying we couldn't use that word. Clearly, it's a very biblical word. It's absolutely true. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. The question, though, is, is what is a deacon? Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna get to that, but I wanna kind of show you that Read you a passage here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Here Paul is, is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's writing to the believers there, and he's addressing them. And I, I want to point out three groups of people that he's addressing. It says, Paul and Timothy, because Timothy is with Paul when he's writing, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints 
in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, with overseers and deacons. All right, so there's three groups of people that Paul is referencing here. They're the saints, all the believers. There's the overseers, the pastors, the elders, whatever you want to call them, the, the bishops. And then there's deacons. So the deacons, what are they doing? We understand the saints, they're the believers, they're the, and then there's the, the leaders, the elders, but then there's this group of people called deacons. And so we're going to look at who those people are, right? Because we need to understand that. To, to really rightly honor God in the church, we want to make sure that we understand what he's asking of us. So here's your big idea for this morning. God's design for his church requires qualified deacons. God's design for his church requires qualified deacons. And you say, well, you haven't told us what a deacon is yet. We're going to get there, right? But this passage, 8 through 13, clearly lays out qualifications, says that deacons are necessary. It's part of God's design, just like elders are part of the design. There was qualifications there. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of attack this passage a little different here in the first 15, 20 minutes here. We're going to look at four questions that that I have when I came to the text, you may have this morning, I don't know. Um, the four questions are this. What does the word deacon mean? What is the role of a deacon? Who can be a deacon? And what are the qualifications of a deacon? So four primary basic questions, because what I want is I want us as a church, look, if God has given us instructions on how to function, we need to go to Scripture and we need to say, how, Lord, how do you want us to function? Like, how, how is best this going to glorify you? What is it you want us to do? You're the creative of all things. You're the one that created the church. This is yours. We're yours. We're your children. How do you, if, if you've told us how to function, we want to function that way. And so I think these are questions that we need to ask. So let's just dive right in. What is the first question? What is the meaning of the word deacon? Well, in the Greek, it's diakonos, right? Diakonos. Um, it can be translated um, different ways. It can be translated minister. It can be translated servant. It can be translated deacon, right? In, the, uh, in most Bibles, it's translated deacon only about three or four times, and that's here in Timothy, uh, multiple times here in Timothy. And then obviously the passage there in um, First Philippians, or yeah, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And so maybe a way to... What is, what is the meaning of the word? It's one who serves. That's really the way to, to look at it. One who serves. One who carries out the commands of another. Um, it was used many times of a servant of the king. He was the one who carried out the commands of the king. One who serves. Some people have looked at it and says, well, in, in context, we could go back to Acts chapter 6 and say, well, it's the people that, that helped feed the widows and, and those that were just serving food, right? Uh, they were called servants there. They're ministers. They minister, you, you were, as the body of Christ, in some respects, we're all ministers of the gospel. We, we share the good news. We share the truth. We serve one another. Um, this weekend, yesterday, there was a, a group of people that went out to uh, a, a, one of our members' homes, a woman's home, and, and helped cut down a bunch of trees and, and shredded a bunch of stuff and cleaned up their property some. And they were serving. They were ministers of the gospel. They were serving her, Right? And so there's this idea of serving. So I think the easiest way for us to look at this is deacons are servants. Deacons are servants. Now, I would argue that in some respects, obviously, elders are servants as well. There's a different role that we serve in. We serve by the preaching, the teaching of the word. Here, this 
term of, of servant really is more of meeting the, the physical needs and some other administrative needs, and we'll take a look at that. But the simplest explanation is that deacons are servants, or one who serves, right? Second question, what is the role of a deacon? Now, I will tell you that um, I have labored a lot over today's message because, um, there, like I said, there are some things in Scripture that are just so clear, um, and it's, it's kind of easy just to get my thoughts together. This, this role of deacon was, was not as clear in Scripture. There are many uh, gospel-preaching churches that view uh, the role of deacons differently. Um, there's not a lot, to just be totally honest with you, there's not a lot in Scripture, uh, in my mind, to be able to help me to really gravitate towards exactly what the full role is. But one place that we do go, and most people go, and I think it's right and good that we go here, is Acts chapter 6. We read this a few weeks ago, but I want to read it to you again. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Here what we're seeing is is in the early church, the early church was just getting started, getting founded. In fact, um, here Paul was not even, the apostle Paul was not even a believer yet. He was still a Pharisee and, and, and still persecuting the Christians. The early church was getting started. And what do we see here? There was some, um, some, some widows that were, were being fed, both Hebrew women and Hellenistic widows that were more Greek in their way, but, and, and there was a favoritism going on. And so some people got upset and came to the apostles and said, hey, you, you need to help us. How can we fix this? And so here is the answer that, that the apostles give them. It says the 12, meaning the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples. So these were the people that were following Jesus. Uh, Jesus has been dead and resurrected now. The early church is starting. There's a group of disciples uh, that are following Christ and his teachings, uh, basically the church, and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. That's not a, it's not, I want to be clear, that's not a proud or, or um, statement. It's not an arrogant statement. They're just saying, look, there's a priority here to teach. We think that needs to be done, but we don't have time, basically. Therefore, the, he, the apostles give them a solution. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good rep- repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we all, whom will uh, anoint to this duty. So he's saying, you pick them out, make sure that they have a good character, they have good reputations, they're believers, and we will appoint them to this duty, right? But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, okay? So he's just saying, look, it's important, it's really important, but we cannot neglect the teaching and the preaching of the word because that needs to be really the primary thing that we're needing to be doing here in the church. Now, so in here, what we see is these seven men that they appointed, many would look and say those were the first deacons. Those were the first, that's not what the text says. It doesn't use the word deacon. It doesn't use the word deaconos there. It just, there's people that were taking care of people. And like I said, we're talking 20, 30 years maybe before Paul even writes this letter to Timothy that this took place. But practically, we think that this is a good place where it's demonstrating that the elders can't do everything in the local church and that they need somebody that they can trust, that is believers, that are responsible to carry out the work of the church, other things in the church, so that they can be devoted to the teaching and preaching. Now, in some churches, um, the, the, the office or the, the place of deacon that you've heard, and maybe you grew up in this, the primary thing that's all they did was to take care of the needs of the congregation, the poor, visited the sick, um, all of that sort of stuff. And that's a beautiful thing, and it's right, and it's good. But some churches, that's all that they did. Other churches have um, 
deacons that are trustees that are, um, you know, kind of help with the financial matters and the budgetary things, and, and they have a deacon board that does all of this. There's other churches then that, that um, would just say, well, they, they were kind of do a little bit of everything. Our folks do this and a little bit of that, and it's kind of unclear. Some churches don't have deacons. You'd say, well, we don't have deacons. I would say, no, we do. We just don't call them that. And so we're trying to now to share with you kind of how we, we function here in light of Scripture. And I'm not saying that at some point we may make some changes to, to better align with what the Word of God says. We always want to try and do that. So one of the challenges to um, some of this is that when you have uh, deacon boards and you have pastor boards and you have trustees, um, is that these groups inside the church don't, don't play well together. Um, there's, there's a struggle for power in some churches. And so we're going to talk about what really I think the structure of the church should look like, and it keeps that from happening. So what is the role of deacon? Let me give you one sum it up this way. Deacon servants assist the elders in accomplishing the mission of the church. Deacons slash servants, how are we going to call them, assist the elders in accomplishing the mission of the church, right? So how do they help do that? And we're going to look at these one at a time, one at a time. First, by freeing up elders so that they can devote themselves to the teaching of the word and to prayer, right? That's, that's the first thing that, that's kind of overarching that they do. I can't do everything. The elders can't do everything here. Obviously, we have a 20,000-square-foot building. We have 30 acres. Um, you know, we have a large budget. All of these things. They have hundreds of people that are members and plus other people that attend. Obviously, the five of us elders cannot do everything. And so the first thing that, that this precious role that these, these servants do is they relieve us from the responsibility to do everything so that we can devote ourselves to the teaching of the word and to prayer and to praying for the congregation, which is an elder team as we do. We get together and we need to do a little bit better at that, obviously, to be praying for individuals here at the church. Number two, by ministering to the physical needs of the body. Another thing that the that deacons do, and they do, we do that well here. We have a benevolence team who, and others that minister to the needs of the body. We have a meals team that people take meals to you. And, and when you're sick or when uh, you have a funeral, maybe many people come in and, and serve you and we provide food for your family. Um, all sorts of physical needs, taking people to the doctor, going and visiting them. Uh, somebody was home just this week and had some real serious surgery, and, and Pastor Brian and others went over and, and sat with them and talked to them and, and just prayed with them. Number three, by handling certain administrative and task, uh, administrative and facility tasks. So I don't write all the checks here. I don't write any checks. In fact, I don't even have access to the checks because of our financial uh, security plan. That the, the pastor doesn't get access to that kind of stuff. I can't even get to the checks. I can sign them, but I can't get access to them. So it's a checks and balances. So we have other people, very important people, that are serving in a role that, that, that we, we don't serve in so that things can get done. We have several acres to, to mow grass and snow to be shoveled and salt to be put down and flower beds to take care of and flowers to be planted because we want it to be a nice place for you to come. There's things that need to be swept and restrooms need to be cleaned and, and all sorts of things. Trash needs to be taken out of multiple rooms, right? Multiple things need to happen here. And so deacons or servants step in to be able to do those things. Number three, or number four, I should say, 
deacons by, or servants by being responsible for specific ministries within the church. Okay? The elders don't have the ability to go uh, manage all the things in children's ministry or the missions ministry or the worship ministry or the student ministry or whatever it may be. So we have servants that do those things, and, and not just anyone has been appointed to that position. We've, we've tried to qualify them. Now, maybe by Scripture here, we need to, do, we keep, need to have a better process, I would say, to, to be able to do this more specific so people understand what the requirements are. I was thinking about this the other day. I was last week when we were, had the um, Compassion International here. I'm standing out there uh, at the table, and the gentleman who's the area director of Compassion is here, and we're talking after the service, and we've been there, and everybody's gone, and he starts telling me all these ideas he's got about other things we could do and wanting to help us, and I pointed to the person that's over missions, and I said, tell that person. I don't, I can't, I can't do all that. I, I can't, I don't know all that. I'm not going to be able to, I, I don't have time to think through all of those things. I can't be the, the I, can't, I would be the the neck of the funnel that would clog everything up if you tried to do that. And so we have other people that can handle those responsibilities. Now, I want to be real clear. I'm going to make a statement here that's not in Scripture, but I think, I think, it, it, I think we can assume this. Not every volunteer is a deacon. Not every servant is a deacon. And you say, well, I thought the deacon meant servant, and if I'm a servant, then why am I not a deacon? And that's a good question. I just don't think that that's what the Scripture is teaching here. And why do I say that? Well, if we go back to Philippians chapter 1 again, there's three groups of people. I'm sure that the saints, the church there, was volunteering and helping with things, but then there was another group of people that were overseers and another group of people were deacons. Okay, I, I think there's a, a specific role for a servant leader that would be denoted as a deacon. Let me give you another way to look at this. Deacons are responsible to do or to lead teams to accomplish specific tasks. So deacons are responsible. It's, it's not just anyone we put there. We've, we've qualified them. They have a, a gift set in some area, and they're, they're task-oriented to be able to accomplish something, to further the, the gospel, to further the mission of the church. Sometimes that deacon is going to be over a group of people that's going to do that, right? So we have someone over the grounds ministry. I would look at that person as the servant leader or the deacon, and there's multiple people that help mow grass. But someone is the point person, the, the responsible person to make sure everything is being done in an orderly and in a good way. We have that over children's ministry, over student ministry, over the missions ministry, over the tech team, over the band, over first impressions, over the cleaning team. There's people that serve in this servant leader role which we could call them deacons. At this point, I think we're going to use the word servant leader and say this is their role. This is their role. And they're responsible to carry out specific or to accomplish specific things. All right. So we've looked at what the word means. It means servant, one who serves. We've looked at the role, right? It's to carry out... Uh, the mission on behalf of the elders to make sure that the gospel is being preached, to do all those things. Third question, who can be a deacon? Now here's where the church at large um, comes down in different places. There's basically three kind of large buckets that, we can, that people fall into this. Some churches would say that only men can be deacons. Uh, some more conservative Presbyterian churches 
only men can be deacons. They look at this text and say, it's only for men. Some would come, if you've been maybe a, a, a brethren church possibly or a grace brethren church, you may look at it and they'd say, well, uh, we were taught, this goes back to what we've learned in, in our denominations, is that a man can be a deacon and a wife can be a deacon if she's married to a deacon. She can be a deacon, but if he dies, she can continue, but, once she, but a single woman can't be a deacon. But if you're a widow, you can be a deacon as long as your husband was a deacon. And I think that's very confusing. I don't, know, I don't think that's a, a biblical piece. I know that why people go there, but I don't think that can be defended very well from Scripture. Then there's some who say that both men and women can be deacons. Both men and women can be servant leaders in the church. And I'll tell you that that's where the elders and I have wrestled with, and we've come down, and that's where we're at. And you say, well... Pastor Raleigh, that's a good thing because we have women serving in those roles. So obviously you're going to teach that. And I will tell you that I have wrestled with that this week. I've looked at the text and I want to honor the Lord in how we teach. And I've wrestled and said, well, if, if I think that Scripture does not teach this, then we're going to have to restructure the church. And I was willing to do that if that's what the elders and I thought the Lord was teaching from the Scripture. And we've not come down to that. We've not done that. But we have really wrestled with this to say we want to honor God. And I want to give you reasons why we've come to the place that we've come. We just didn't say, well, this is convenient for us. We really have wrestled with the text. And so I'm going to take you through the text now, and I want to tell you that why that we feel that this is important and why that we think that women can be servant leaders or deacons. And I know some people would use the term deaconesses. Um, that, that word is not in Scripture. We've used that in our, our culture to identify between a male servant and a woman servant, but that's not there. They're just servants. And so uh, I don't use the word deaconess. I just, you're a servant. You're a servant leader. You're a deacon, right? All right, so let's read the text together. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. We're going to look at basically five major points that I think support um, that women can be servant leaders in the church or deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing his children and their household well, the households well, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay. So, many people can come to that text and come away with different views on who can be a deacon. And I totally, I, I can understand that, and we have wrestled with this as well. So here's why we have decided that and scripturally, that we can feel comfortable about having women as servant leaders. First thing, in these verses, the pronouns of he and his are not used. Now, why, did, why is that important? Because in verses 1 through 7 last week, we looked at when it talks about elders and that we said it can only be a, a male, 10 times Seven times the word he was used, the pronoun he was used, and three times his. So it was clearly saying that this role of pastor elder is male. It's a, it's a man. 
he now switches, and in these next five verses, when he talks about this other role of, of deacon, he doesn't use any of those pronouns. In fact, he switches and says they and them, right? Now, you could say, well, they, them just meant plural, and that's possible. I'm not here to debate that. That's possible. But I think it's very um, telling that he's not using those terms anymore, all right? That's number one. Number two, the word there in verse 11 where it says, their wives likewise. Their wives, the word for wives in Greek is gune. It can be translated wives or women. Depends on what translation you have. Some translate it women, some translate it wives. The word there is not in the Greek. It's just a word that we put in there to help make it flow, their wives. It's not there. So it doesn't say the wives or the women. It's not there. It's just women. So if you translate it women, it says women likewise must be dignified. And so now it's seeming to me that it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a wife of a deacon, of a male deacon. It could be women in general that he's speaking of. And I think there's great reason to say that that's exactly what he's speaking of here. So the next point, the third point I would argue, is at the beginning of this passage when it says deacons likewise in verse 8. What, what Paul is doing is he's transitioning from elders to another group of people, deacons. And I think here he's speaking of male deacons in verse 8. When he gets to verse 11, he uses that same terminology. He says, women, if you translate it that way, likewise. Now he's, he's adding another group now based on his, his, his grammar here and his, his description. There's another group of people, and I think he's saying they're women, right? So that would read, women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now he's addressing the role of a woman as a deacon, Point number four. I think this is maybe one of the most compelling points for me. In verses one through seven, when he's talking about the elders, there's no qualification for an elder's wife listed in verses one through seven. I think that's usually significant. Here in verses eight through 13, he is saying that if you're a male deacon, your wife has to be qualified and she must be this way, this way, this way, and this way. But there's no qualification for men or for women that are wives to elders. That would seem absolutely um, not logical. That's like saying, that as, a, as an elder, as a pastor here, my wife doesn't have to adhere to any a higher standard. No, absolutely. I think she should. But down below, he makes it clear that if you're a, a, an L or a, a, a deacon, that your wife must be this way. And so what I think what the, the passage is really saying is, is this is not a qualification for an L or a deacon's wife. It's a qualification for a woman. It's a qualification for a woman. That's why it's not listed in one through seven, because women cannot be elders based on the scripture. So it's not showing there. It's only showing here because that office or that role is available to women. And he gives criteria for it. Notice that he says there basically, um, you have these qualities. Well, those are the same similar qualities that he gives above, which I think he's speaking in verse 8, to men, right? Otherwise, he'd just be repeating the same thing. I think this is a different segment, segment of people. Number five, the same word for woman name is named 
uh, is used in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, of a woman named Phoebe. It says that she is a decanos. She's a servant. Here in 16, uh, Paul was uh, welcoming several people and thanking several people that were coming to the Church of Rome to help out. And he, he comes to this uh, woman very early on in chapter 16. And I'll just read you the text. 16.1, it says, I commend to you our sister. So he's acknowledging her as a believer. Phoebe, a servant at Diakonos of the church at Sencrea. So he's not just someone from this church. She is a diakonos, a servant from the church at Sincrea. I think that's supporting this fact that she's coming in a role that she can serve and help the early church there in Rome because she's someone that has been deemed um, qualified to come and to be able to serve there in some type of servant leader position. Number six, this is much more subjective and I don't have a passage that I can point to directly. In the early church, that culture, there were certain things that really women had to do to minister to other women because of the, the way that men couldn't minister to certain women. There was just this, this big void that we, we, we couldn't minister to the same way under cultural rules and all sorts of things. So to, to have someone serving women, many times it had to be another qualified woman to be able to do these things. There was baptism and all sorts of very intimate things that another woman would have to do to care for other women. And so you could say, well, they were just volunteers serving under the, the male headship of a deacon. That's possible, but I, I don't think everything else, the, the, the whole totalitarian of what we're looking at, I don't think supports that. I think that it's saying here that both men and women can serve in the local church and be servant leaders. So what is the kind of the point of all that? Both qualified men and women can serve as deacons or, and or slash servant leaders, which is kind of a synonym for us, servant leaders. All right. Three questions down, one more to go. What are the qualifications of a deacon? Now here, we're going to kind of zip through this kind of quickly, but here we're seeing very similar qualifications as what were required for elders. The thing that is obviously going to be missing is, is that it's not a requirement to be able to teach. It's not a requirement to be able to do that. Because, and once again, I think that's another thing that opens up this role for the role of a woman to be a servant leader. It's, there's no requirement. He, there's already been a prohibition on, on the women having teaching over a man and have an authority over a man in the leadership of the church as a whole. And he's did that up in 1 through 7. In 8 through 13, he's not doing that. And so I think it's opened for multiple reasons. There's not that prohibition here of teaching. So I think women can step into this. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made that. If all this would have been for men, he would have just made one comment for all of it. Okay? So verse 8 says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. All right, so this is his first shot across the bow. He's saying, likewise, if you're going to be a servant leader, these are the things. Now, specifically, I think he's kind of addressing men here, but I think it applies to all of us because he's going to address women here in a minute. This idea of dignified, uh, what does that mean? Um, just real quickly, showing proper respect for both God and man, just being reverent. As I, as I kind of was looking through these this week and, and kind of just thinking about these, these criteria that he lays out, isn't it sad? These, these are not high criteria. These, these are basic um, moral, you know, 
equitable or, you know, very integrity type of things. Be dignified. Show respect to people. And I think about our culture today, and I think about we just don't show respect to people. Our culture just does not respect each other. We don't respect authority. We don't respect our elders. We don't respect our parents. There's just so much disrespect. And he's saying here in the text, even 2,000 years later, we are struggling with these same things. If you're going to be in a position that I can trust you to put you over other people in God's church to be able to carry out tasks, you have to have a a level of dignity and respect and, and reverence for people. Number two, not double tongued. Basically, a person who speaks the truth the first time and with no intent to deceive. You got to be honest. You got to be faithful and trusting, right? We have to be able to trust you if I'm going to put you in charge of a task or over other people to accomplish something on behalf of the elders and to complete the mission of the church. Number three, not addicted to too much wine. Obviously, we covered this last week again. We talked about how. We shouldn't be controlled by alcohol or influenced in any way that could, could, could jeopardize our, our reputation or our, the task at hand or uh, even our, as we look towards outsiders. We just, we just can't, we shouldn't be so careful there. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Money should not control us or material wealth should not be this thing that, that drives us or controls us in any sort of way. Uh, we, we can't be held hostage or, or slave to money. Um, it just makes us do all sorts of horrible things, doesn't it? I think of two passages in Scripture. One I, I won't read, but I'll just remind you of where, where money made people do things, or at least it was part of the process. Judas t- basically turns Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver, right? But I think maybe more powerful is here in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. There's... A couple here, a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, and and they've decided they're, apparently it looks like they're believers, they've sold their home, Uh, they're going to donate, they sell the apostles, all the funds to their home to the church. And they decide not to do that, and yet, and there was no requirement to do this, this is something they decided to do, and they decided that actually Ananias, the husband, decided he was going to hold back some of the money and lie. And so here we pick it up in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he brings this money, but he's, he's not brought it all, even though he said he was going to bring it all. And he's, he's being dishonest here. And so I'll just cut to the chase. Both him and his wife were struck down dead in that circumstance for lying to the apostles that way. And it wasn't that they, the apostles were asking for the money. There was some, they were asked to sell their house. We don't, that's not, we don't think that's a thing to do with it. It's just that he, money determined what he was going to do. He, he decided to, he should have just been honest. So here we see he's, he's double-tongued, right? He's not respecting the disciples, and he's doing something for a dishonest gain. He's trying to keep money. And so three of the four things he fails at. As I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking about, you know, how we qualify people, and, and sometimes, um, you know, I've heard different people say, well, you know, boy, it's kind of tight to be able to do that or do this. It's kind of restrictive. You know, I, I believe, can I do this? And I, I just scratched my head. And I said, you know, for most of you that have children, if you ever had a babysitter to come babysit your three and four-year-olds, do you just let anybody babysit your children? Do you just let anybody come in? And, or, or do you say, well, I want to make sure that, you know, you're respectful. 
of, of my property, of, of me, of my children? Are you, can I trust you? Are you going to lie to me? Are you going to have a party while I'm gone, right? I mean, you say you won't, but can I trust you? Are, are you going to drink here? I mean, this is just like, this is like our culture, isn't it? Are you greedy for dishonest gain? In other words, you want to be paid for what you're doing, but you're really not going to spend the, the time here or do the things I want you to do. You're just doing it for the money, not doing it really to love me and serve me and my children. I had to laugh. I was even thinking, you know, we don't have kids at home anymore. They're almost, well, one of them's 40, and I think one's 38 or something. In effect, I've lost track. Um, so we have somebody watch our house when we travel because we have a dog. I have a German Shepherd I'm very fond of. His name's Finn. I want someone to come and take care of my dog. I'm going to vet them. I've had lots, Terry and I have had lots of different high school students and college students stay at our home. And we've made sure that we've thought about them before we put them in that spot. We've asked, we've, we've vetted them, we've asked questions, we've, we've walked with them, so to speak, in church for a long time before we would ask someone to do that. We want to make sure that we know them. So if, if we would do that for our children and, and for my dog, and we want that out of that, how much more should we make sure that the people that we're putting over these very, very crucial roles for the promotion of the gospel and the, the proclamation of the gospel to make the gospel available to people and serving, that we wouldn't have a high standard for that. And we wouldn't make sure that we put people through that. And so we should. And clearly, I'm sure over the years of the church, we have placed people in roles that um, we shouldn't have. I'm sure that's happened. And so we need to do better at, at watching for that. But, but remember that this process, whatever that we come to, is, is, is because we care about the body. We care about you. We care about the church. And so we want to make sure that we're trying to adhere. And God has given us a process because it, look, it's just wisdom. He's saying, look, there's wisdom here and do it this way. All right, a couple more verses and then we'll call it quits. 1 Timothy 3, 9 and 10. It says, they, hold, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. And let, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be blameless. So there's a high standard here. The first thing, it says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So first of all, I'll say the mystery of the faith. Faith, they must hold the doctrines of the church. They must understand them. They must believe them. They must hold them. It's not wishy-washy. They must commit to these things. And they must have a clear conscience. In other words, they can't... They can't be sinning and being guilty all the time and say, well, I believe these things, but I'm living this way and my conscience is, is stained and I, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm always struggling. It's one thing to say I struggle with temptation a little bit, but to live in such a way that you don't have a clear conscience is not the kind of position that we would put someone in or the kind of person we'd want to put in this place. They must be tested, just like these students that we have stay at our home. I have to know them. I have to want to know their life a little while. I want to see them. I want to talk to them a while. They have to be tested before they can prove themselves to be blameless and put in this position. And so, very similar deacons, people that we're going to put in charge of other people to, to accomplish a specific task so that the glory of God, the teaching of his word, the, the proclamation of him can be put out there and to be testified to. They are playing a huge role in that. And so we want to make sure that they are people that can prove themselves to be blameless. Now, before we move on, I want to touch on, just, I want to just, just encourage you with something and hope you see this. It says they must hold to the mystery of the faith. This idea, the mystery of the faith. 
I want to read you a couple passages about the mystery and kind of where Paul gets this. In Colossians verses 20, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he is writing about the mystery of the faith. He said, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I just want you to let that sit in for a second. What, what God is saying here is, is that the gospel for thousands of years was shrouded in a mystery. Even the angels, I believe, did not understand what God was going to do to redeem man to give him a chance to be saved, to, to bring him back into fellowship with God the Father. And what he says here is that it's been revealed. It says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So today, if you're in Christ, if, if you have a relationship with Christ, you've been born again, you have been, this mystery has been revealed to you a mystery that you've not done anything to earn, not anything to, to, to discover on your own. It's been revealed to you by God for why? Read the rest of that. Which is Christ in you. That's the mystery that Christ would come and descend from heaven and that he would take residence in our heart. That's the mystery. Why would God do such a thing? That's the mystery that he's talking about. And why? It goes on there and says, the hope of glory. In other words, for the hope that we will spend eternity with God, right? It's the mystery and the riches of this mystery. And so I, I just want to say, if you're a believer this morning, there's 8 billion people in the world, and you are on a narrow road, not because you chose it, not because you wanted it, it's because God has chosen to reveal this incredible truth to you. That should change how you live. That should change how you see God. That should change how, you, how we love Scripture, because it, it's it's something that God is so preciously in his grace and his mercy has done for us. Verse 11. Their wives, or if you translate it, women, likewise, must be dignified. Once again, he's repeating what he's already said in verse 8, which I think was addressed to men. Likewise, must be dignified, so reverent, right? Not slanderers, so once again, speak truth but sober-minded, not drinking, and faithful in all things, right? Faithful in all things. Faithful in finances, faithful in the, the faith, have a clear conscience. He's just further saying that this is this, this category for women to be able to serve. You must be this way if we're going to put you as a servant leader. And I think he switches back to deacons. You say, well, why is he switching back and forth? Well, clearly in that culture, there was probably um, a much higher... I don't want to say standard. There was, a, there, was a, there was a lot involved. The men were very prominent. And, and so there was, he was speaking primarily more so to men here, I believe, because they were the, the leaders of the home. And so here in verse 12, when he says, let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, he's saying, look, men, if you're going to play in this role, you need to make sure you're managing your children well and your own household well and that you're, not, you're faithful to your wife. It's just a criteria that he's putting on men here. And then we get to the last verse in the text, verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons or servant leaders gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to gain a good standing? Um, look, 
if, if you are a servant leader here in the church and you are, are doing well at that, you are, you are um, reverent and, and speak truth and, and not addicted, you know, not drinker, not drinking, not addicted to wine, not letting that influence you. If you're, if you're humble and you're not out for, for you know, financial gain and you're doing these things and you're serving well and you're accomplishing the task that's been, been you know, given to you to, to further the, the ability of the church to be able to present the gospel and you're doing that well, you will have a good standing. <laughs> You will have a good standing. People will look to you and be grace thankful for you and, and, and they will look up to you and hopefully they, they'll, they'll try and model their life at some level after you. If you're following Christ, we said a few weeks ago, people can follow you. It says for those who serve well as servant leaders, gain a good standing. Look, there are people in this congregation that I think have served well and to me, they have gained a good standing in my eyes. I'm so grateful for them. I can trust them. But then it says, and also, these people will gain a great confidence in the faith that is Christ Jesus. As a pastor, I've been serving for, I don't know, 15 years as a pastor. And, and I hope that at least at some level, I've, as, as a servant, I've gained a good standing before the congregation and for our community. Not perfect by any means, but, but a good standing. And I was thinking about this, and also a great confidence in the faith. How is, how is serving people a great confidence in the faith? Because as I have served, as I have come alongside other people in this church and partnered for the gospel, I see where God is moving. I see how God is changing lives. I see how he's restoring people, how he's calling people to himself. And all of that service is providing a greater confidence for me in Christ. I see that it is real. I see that it is absolutely real and tangible in my life. And so, what's your takeaway for this morning? For a church to be healthy, it needs qualified servant leaders. For this church, any church to be healthy, we need qualified servant leaders. It is not enough just to have elders and pastors. We need both. We need both. Ideally, the three groups mentioned in Philippians chapter 1, the saints, the body of Christ, who includes elders, overseers, and servant leaders, are all working together for what purpose? To make sure the gospel gets presented. To make sure that the word of God is taught that it is proclaimed, right? That's the number one. We're all doing that. The elders couldn't do the work of teaching and preaching like we should if we were always having to worry about everything else. That would falter. The, the number one thing that needs to happen is the preaching and teaching the word. It doesn't mean that the elders are the most important person. It means the most important task is the preaching and teaching of the word. And if you can't help serve, or if you don't help serve and play a role in that, then it will be hindered because someone that is teaching and preaching the word has to do those things. The congregation, I've told you so many times, your attendance here encourages me. It does. Just me walking in and seeing everyone makes my day. I don't even know you and it's encouraging me. Because I'm like, people are coming to sit and to, to see who you are, Lord, to know more about you. And that encourages me. I see people serving and encourages me. I see other people teaching and encourages me. I see people sponsoring children for the glory of God that encourages me. Sacrificially giving to, to, for the works of the ministry 
serving meals to people, using their gifts in teaching and in the band and welcoming people and greeting people. But they need to be qualified. And when we have servant leaders that are qualified and they are serving in the roles that God has gifted them with, we as a church will be healthier. Let me leave you with this verse and then I'll pray. Found in 1 Peter 4, 10, in the first part of 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. What's he saying? If you have gifts, use them for the kingdom. Use it to serve one another. If your gift is preaching and teaching, use it. As an elder, obviously, but even as a woman, use it to teach other women. Use it to teach other, disciple other women, right? Use it to teach young children in our children's ministry. Use your gift. If your gift is serving, plug in wherever you can use that gift. If it's the cafe, if it's missions ministry, if it's worship ministry, it's tech, if it's cleaning, whatever, it's grounds maintenance, it's facilities care. All of those things are working together to make the gospel to be presented. If we didn't have this building, we couldn't present to new guests. We couldn't have room for people. If this wasn't clean, people wouldn't come. Believe me, if the bathrooms weren't clean, people would come a few times. If it was disgusting, they would stop coming. Everything is making it available so that the people can come unhindered. The nursery, which we desperately need some people to serve in at 11 o'clock because we don't have anybody for nursery. And that means people have to bring their kids in here. And that's a burden for them. They would like to be able to... So people that serve in the nursery make it possible for that couple to come or that single mom or single dad to come in here and hear the gospel without a child sitting there and having to care for that child. So it's promoting the teaching and the preaching of the word and lifting up the importance of the gospel. And why do we do all those things? First of all, God supplies those things. But it says in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Christ. That's the point. That in all of our work and all of our service, as elders, as servant leaders, it's all about making sure that God will be glorified through his son and through the work of the cross. Let's pray. Dear Father, I want to thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the, ah, the gift of salvation that you have called us, Father, that you have made us yours. You've snatched us from the mire of a sinful world and you've set us upon your son, upon the rock. You've given us new life. Father, help us to use our gifts, our talents for your glory so that others will come to know you and make much of you and place you as the priority in their life. I pray that you have worked and drawn many people here today, first service and second service. Father, even after first service, that couple that came, Father, that they're hungry for you. They believe that there's conviction, that they know they need to, to put you as a priority in their life. Father, I pray that you'll continue to work there in their hearts. Father, as we see how you've laid out a structure for your church, Father, help us to, to do all that we can to honor you by adhering to that structure. Help us not to be afraid of dying to things or, or pleasing you over pleasing man, Father. That's something we all fall prey to. Father, help us to all aspire to these qualifications. We should all, 
all of us should be living and striving for these things in our life. And Father, we thank you for the grace that you have on us when we fall and we stumble and fall short. But help us not to continue to pers- the pursuit of holiness. Finally, Lord, I thank you for all the servant leaders, whether in the teaching or in the physical needs or the facilities administration that are in this body. Father, you, I just pray you have favor upon them and help them to realize that every one of their acts is furthering the proclamation of the gospel. The saving word of God is being put out there as we work together for your glory with the gifts that you have given us. May you receive all the glory and praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.